On this week's episode of Bet the Process, we will be talking to Mitchell Lichtman, who is known as MGL and is one of the OG sabermetric baseball dudes, created ultimate zone rating, and was a real advantage player for a long time, uh, poker, blackjack, and sports betting in the world of baseball. Also worked for the uh, St. Louis Cardinals uh, when they won the World Series. So uh, he's got some great insights about gambling and analytics and baseball in general. I think you really enjoy it. And also, as always, this podcast is brought to you by the Sports Action app, which is the best way to track all of your sports betting information, knowledge, content, etc. And it's available for free on the Google Play and iTunes Store. So with that, let's start the process. Welcome now into the Bet the Process podcast, Mitchell Lichtman, who is, I think, an inspiration uh, in many ways to Rufus and I. I think he's sort of one of the OG gambling analytics people. Um, if, if any of you guys have ever seen some of the, the defensive measurements, um, Mitchell was doing this stuff, developed ultimate zone rating um, before any of this like player tracking or any of this newfangled technology mumbo jumbo. Um, and obviously uh, Rufus and I both have a tremendous amount of respect for him and his work. So we welcome him in and excited to have a conversation about analytics and gambling with him. Rufus, did you want to tell uh, Mitchell about sort of how you got into this world? I, yeah, sure. Um, actually I was, I read um, his book along with uh, his book with Tango and, and Dolphin, the book. During uh, when I was in college, my junior year, right before I went out to Las Vegas to do an internship with Las Vegas sports consultants. And actually, it ended up motivating me to change my senior thesis topic from corruption and amateur athletics to psychological inefficiencies in the baseball betting market. So um, in a way, you're definitely responsible for me being a professional bet uh, gambler. Well, sounds like you might be responsible for uh, destroying the, bet the betting market in baseball. <laughs> uh, I think that's you. So, like, let's start with that, Mitchell. Are you are you still betting on baseball, or is the market just destroyed? No more edges. I think the market's destroyed. I I, I think uh, you you could probably get a small edge here and there, um, but I I think it's mostly gone. And where and you, you attribute that to people like Rufus who've come in and and sort of taken modeling to a new level, or like, what do you attribute that to? Yeah, um, I, I don't really know what Rufus is doing or, or, or did. I, I was being a little facetious, um, but um, maybe may truthful too. But um, yeah, I think it's twofold. I think it's uh, the lines makers are really sophisticated um, when they put out the, the opening line uh, and then, um, uh, you know, keep it updated. And I think that the uh, betting market is filled with people who have analytical models and they quickly uh, correct the lines. So back in the day when you were betting on baseball, like what kind of edges were you seeing overall on, on some of your bets? Like on average, I guess, what, what would you say your edge was? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, you know, because of just sample size. Uh, and I never really kept close track. Our edges were so big that I didn't really feel a need to keep close track. Um, but, um, you know, looking at our results at the end of the season, I'd say probably for the first 
Oh, I mean, almost 20 years. It, it was a candy store. Um, but probably uh, for the whole season, you know, all our plays aggregated to, uh, totals and sides, uh, probably somewhere between 5 and 10%, probably closer to the 10% uh, mark at the uh, beginning, you know, maybe for like the first 10 or 15 years, and then a little bit less after that. But it took a dramatic turn like about five, six years ago, I think. And where do, where was those when those edges when were available? Where you know what did you find were the biases that were causing those edges? Was it you know over like favorites or was it you know like teams that were you know recency bias or what was the what was the reason that you, you were seeing those big edges or the the mispricing? Yeah, good question. Uh, multitude of factors. Um, uh, as far as sight go, uh, the dogs were our bread and butter. Uh, I'm not sure that there was a huge overall bias uh, in terms of the favorites, um, you know, that that we could exploit. But the dogs were definitely our bread and butter. I mean, we probably had between a 10 and 15 percent edge for many, many years on on dogs. Um, and as far as you know, where that bias came from was just a combination of uh, uh, you know the public uh, liking favorites. Um, especially big favorites, uh, we usually had a tremendous edge year in and year out on uh, big favorites, um, which practically don't exist anymore. About five, six years ago, they just stopped, uh, you know, putting out big favorite lines on good team versus bad team, you know, with good pitcher versus average or bad pitcher uh, used to be high twos, low threes type lines. Um, no longer really just, I mean, how often do you see a line above 250 anymore, you know, once in a blue moon? And th those were routine back in the day. And then the other thing is, you know, we, especially at the very beginning, uh, Jeff and Rufus, uh, we started like in 1989, 1990, and the totals were just awful, terrible. I mean, they knew nothing about the totals. They knew almost nothing. I say they, I, I obviously mean the people that put out the lines and then even the public to a large extent knew almost nothing about park factors. And even though park factors, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, were fairly well known, certainly among, you know, people that really followed baseball closely on the early analysts. Uh, you know, it wasn't like uh, we're, <laughs> we're talking, you know, uh, early 1900s when they knew nobody knew anything about park factors. But um, so uh, we killed them with respect to uh, park factors and totals. Like, uh, there was a time where like in the Astrodome, you know, which is one of the most historically pitcher friendly parks in baseball. Um, and there was a time where we just bet like under in the Astrodome almost every day. And which is kind of curious looking back on it, because certainly guys that put out the lines, I mean, they, they saw the results, you know, they were able to tabulate the results and see that, you know, the game constantly went under in the, in the Astrodome. But I guess, just, they just didn't really understand park factors. So we killed the, the totals for a while. And um, we killed, like I said, the dogs um, for a long time. And uh, th there was a lot of bias, like, in terms of just public perception of teams, uh, team win streaks. You know, if a team had won four, five, six games in a row, line was probably steamed, you know, 20, 30, 40, even 50 cents sometimes. Same, you know, obviously, same thing with losing streaks. So things like that. We're really baked into the line. Not true anymore at all. Not even. I mean, there's just nothing there anymore as far as those kind of obvious 
biases, you know, that the public likes to play. So yeah. How did you actually get started um, back in like 1990 betting baseball? Um, it's hard to remember. It was so long ago, but um, I think I was independently uh, reading up uh, on the baseball analytics. Uh, obviously, the seminal books back then were like Hidden Game of Baseball, Pete Palmer, John Thorne, um, Diamond Appraised, um, Craig Wright, and Tom House, I think. And those were the two big ones. And then the Bill James abstracts and even like some of the lesser known ones like, uh, I don't know, uh, like Rufus, you remember Mike Gimbel's uh, books that he put out like in the early 90s or late 80s? I, I don't. I think that was before my time a little bit. Yeah, kind of a, I don't know if you heard or read about it, but kind of a crazy, crazy guy. He worked like, uh, he was like Norton on the honeymooners. He worked like for the New York City like uh, sewer system department or something like that. And he was also like an amateur baseball analyst. But he was really bright. Like, he was like an early pioneer, early adopter of baseball analytics. Not for gambling purpose. I mean, none of these guys were, obviously. So I was real interested in that. Just read up on that. Uh, always, you know, had an interest in baseball. Obviously, always uh, was an analytical guy. And then, uh, you know, as you know, I had already been playing blackjack and poker professionally for uh, about 10 years at the time. So I just thought, man, this seems like a good, you know, maybe I can get a, an edge at, at uh, baseball betting because I doubt that uh, – you know, they incorporate this kind of a model and this kind of approach into the line. So I did some back testing, you know, like all good handicappers did some back testing and sure enough, it looked like in the back testing, just with a really simple analytical model. I mean, really simple that from the back testing, I was able to get uh, just a ridiculous edge on the back testing with a simple model. So we just started firing away in the second half of 1989. You know, I teamed up with a couple of very prominent poker players back then. <laughs> One of them since deceased. Um, and uh, we just started firing away. And the rest is history, I guess. And how, how big was the market back then compared to what it is now? Because I know the market really hasn't, at least in my, uh, in my lifespan as a, a, a baseball better, hasn't really in, really increased in, in volume or size, really. Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't have any idea uh, what the market was like uh, um, in terms of, you know, how much we could bet. Um, it hasn't really changed. Uh, I don't think, you know, we were betting back then, um, oh, probably like um, officially, you know, like maybe 10 to 30K a, a, a game, a, a bet. And, uh, you know, I guess that was a lot back then, but I don't really, uh, it still is obviously, but I don't really know what the market was like. But I, I tend to think, uh, just like you said, that the market's not that much different now. The difference, of course, I assume is that, the, you know, the percentage of uh, sharp bettors in the market is, I assume, is, or at least the percentage of money uh, in, in the betting market by the sharps has increased substantially, I assume. Yeah, I agree with that. And so um, my senior thesis back in 2008, I actually looked at how um, FIP theory was undervalued by the market. And basically there were edges to be had by betting on high strikeout, low walk pitchers, um, you know, the whole process over outcome thing. And I'm curious, do you think, well, I think I found at this point that that type of edge is basically gone. Um, do you think strikeouts are now in a way a little overvalued? Strikeouts are overvalued. Um, you mean like in the betting market? In the betting market. Yeah, I mean, because I, I feel like it, we, it's come around 
I mean, well, especially now with um, with sort of the hit FX Statcast stuff, where we can actually do a better job of of um, quantifying uh, balls in play and and what little control the pitcher does have over those. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's still some um, inefficiency in the market compared to say a really really good analytical model model like you say that uses um, uh, you know Statcast data. Um, but I don't think it's gone in the other direction. I don't think there are like biases that you could exploit that are based upon too much of a, you know, imperfect analytical approach, if that's what you're implying. I don't think that's the case, but I haven't done any research. Um, research that I've done in the last few years, though, does suggest, uh, Rufus, that, um, uh, that there's still some, you know, of your basic kind of public uh, typical better bias in the market a little bit. Um, you know, for example, like um, uh, it's mostly in the totals, though, that, that I've seen in my research, not not as much in the sides, um, which is really surprising. You know, like a pitcher can be just pitching horribly, let's say, in terms of his ERA, you know, for the his last three starts or something like that. And you would expect there to be, you know, the public money would be and and hence the line itself would be, you know, biased against that player and vice versa for like a pitcher or against, you know, that pitcher and that team and vice versa for a pitcher that's been pitching really well lately. You know, maybe uh, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head because I don't really follow baseball that much. Um, but, you know, a pitcher that has like a really good projection uh, that he's just been pitching bad lately, probably just having some bad luck, you would expect the line's to be pretty biased against them. And you, you don't see that in the sides at all anymore, I don't think. Um, but you do see that a little bit in the totals. The totals still have some of that, like, public perception, you know, classical way that a amateur handicap would handicap a game bias. But you don't see it in the sides. I, I, I don't know why. Maybe the, uh, you know, the sharps really focus on the sides these days. I don't know. Well, there's more volume on sides than totals, so I think it does make sense that that's more efficient. But with totals, did you ever focus a lot on weather? I mean, I feel like that, to me, at this point, is the biggest inefficiency with the total. Really? That's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I always incorporated weather into the um, into the model. You know, there were t times when I got pretty sophisticated in terms of, like, calculating the uh, air density based upon the barometric pressure and the temperature and uh, not so much humidity because uh, that's a little bit tricky. But um, uh, as far as bias with, I mean, there's, there's in my research, I found there's still a little bit of bias uh, as far as weather goes and the totals, like they don't quite maybe account for uh, temperature, uh, how that affects run scoring. But in, in what way do you see, or you think that there's still a bias in terms of weather? Um well, I think it. I think it. Uh, the effect is different for different parks. Obviously, Wrigley Field is the classic example. You know, they don't even put up overnight totals because because the weather uh, is so extreme there. But there are there are yeah. parks where where the wind could be blowing in from right field, and that's actually going going to increase scoring because of you know the different patterns with the buildings around the stadium and all that stuff. So, so I basically used a Bayesian type model to account for different wind vectors in different stadiums, as well as you know obviously the barometric pressure. Um, I actually do use humidity a little bit, but, um, you know, temperature, all that stuff. And so mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a black box model, but it's, it's done pretty well.
Okay, gotcha. You're probably doing that in a more sophisticated fashion than I ever did. Um, you know, I, I might have been like jaded a little bit just because, you know, our edges were just so ridiculously big that I didn't feel like I needed a real sophisticated model as far as things like that go. And then later on, when I, the last five or six years, uh, when our edges just shrank dramatically, uh, then I tried to incorporate more sophisticated models. I never could uh, tackle the uh, the wind thing, though, to be honest with you. Like all the research I've ever done, you know, using historical wind data, either from, uh, you know, from the park. You know, most of the parks actually have, like, a little weather station. I'm sure you know that in the park. <clears throat> um, but, uh, you know, using, like, wind data that you get from, like, retrofeet, you know, that keeps track of, obviously, of all the uh, data at the park and, and the play-by-play data um, or nearby weather stations, that sort of thing. You know, and just never could – the wind, uh, you know, the direction that it's blowing in and, and even the um, – the velocity just didn't correlate at all with with any of the uh, you know offensive data, as well, I'm the, sure you know. For the yeah, go ahead. Well, a big problem I found actually with the retro sheet stuff, which I guess is observations from the weather station at the park, is that when yeah. you know I, what I needed, you know, what I need for betting is a forecast of the wind, you know, a day in advance or so, or and so, and and I'm not able to get a forecast from that exact same um, from inside the stadium. So I remember a few years ago seeing like. Uh, I think it was a Brewers game and it said the wind was blowing out to center field, but based on the weather forecast, the wind was supposed to be blowing in from center field. And, and I looked and I found a lot of um, inconsistencies between the retro sheet wind direction and the wind direction. Um, I guess at the closest weather station I could find, um, you know, from weather underground, the closest airport is what I used. And so I, think, uh-huh. so I ended up, I, I end up not using the retro sheet stuff at all anymore. I'm just using the weather at the particular like airport closest to the stadium, just so I can have an apples to apples comparison. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think the problem is just, you know, you hit the nail on the head is, is just knowing the weather for uh, forecast or even, you know, the game time wind data is just not that helpful because uh, of the uh, effect uh, of the various things in and around the park that change the direction of the, uh, of the, uh, um, you know, of, of the wind and, and, and exactly. the, the direction. And, yeah. And even the, uh, the magnitude of the wind. So I was never able, I mean, there is a little bit of, um, trick that I use with wind, which I don't really want to <laughs> disclose. I mean, even <laughs> I'm not really doing much anymore, but, uh, it's real simple, but, uh, and I'm sure anybody could figure it out, you know, if they do have some wind data, but other than that, yeah. And I didn't really even find the density stuff that I used, you know, um, which is really all you're interested in. You're only interested really in, you know, temperature is just a really a proxy for the air density. So you're really interested in just air density and wind, as I'm sure you know. And my sophisticated density formula just didn't seem to help that much. I just, you know, to, um, I just don't think you can get much of an edge uh, on totals. You know, maybe if you have, I don't know, someone at the ballpark or someone that has intimate knowledge of like the wind currents at the, each of the ballparks. You know, maybe you could exploit that, but I haven't been able to do that, to be honest with you. So, um, yeah, I was just so, that I didn't need to do that back in the day because, you know, the edges were so big. I, so wish I, just... I, w- I wish I was in the baseball betting market back then. Yeah, well, you can say that about just about everything, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> I wish I had uh, gotten into the Hong Kong horse racing 20 years ago. You know, I wish we knew what we knew now about blackjack, uh, you know, 30 years ago, right? Or 40 years ago. <laughs> Yeah, so can you can you describe to me a little bit because one of the things we talk a lot about on the show is just the the idea of 
rethinking models or you know like one of one of the things with blackjack right as you mentioned it is that it's stable over time right it's a stationary distribution or rules never change so you can be very um believe you can believe and be very stubborn and believing in your models and believing in your process over and over again but sports betting isn't the same so i'm interested in sort of what the process that you went through when you basically decided that the edges weren't there and and i'm guessing you sort of like shut 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 the shop down a little bit like how did that go how did you you know get to that point and you know so how how did you mentally resolve yourself to do that yeah i mean it was tough because i liked i i the uh, sort of the cognitive dissonance i always had jeff was like um you know i was always kind of thought of myself as probably you know one of the if not the best baseball handicappers in the world and um you know i felt pretty humbled when i i really couldn't beat it anymore, you know, um, the last few years. And so I felt kind of lost. So I thought, well, you know, that if I can make my model more and more sophisticated um, using, you know, really getting into the StatCast data before that, the pitch FX data, um, you know, uh, even the uh, the weather stuff that we were talking about, you know, I only started doing that about four or five years ago, you know, you know, using the density. Before that, I was just using really temperature and an estimate of the wind as far as the weather goes and that's it <clears throat> so but it just didn't seem to help you know i mean i would be losing you know five six seven percent overall on my edge and i'm trying to squeak out another you know tenth of a percent with these models maybe so you know what, what was that going to do not very much so i i was pretty humbled i mean what i found was we just stopped winning or winning very much and uh, also when I just started doing my research, and I, I can't really, it's really hard to explain, but, you know, how I would come to these conclusions. But I could see <clears throat> that when I did my research, you know, say at the end of the season or in between seasons, that um, just taking a look at the lines and 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 maybe the variance of the lines or just, uh, you know, I can't even remember off the top of my head, you know, how I would try to determine how good the lines are. But I had some pretty good methods to determine how good are the lines, how efficient are they. Uh, how much, uh, you know, the variance in the lines, like I said, probably decreased dramatically. You know, you don't have these uh, huge favorites uh, very much at all, all the time, which was a, that was like a source of uh, some of our big edges were these huge favorites where teams were really only $1.50, $1.75 dogs, but the books would have $2.50, $2.73 on, on those games. So, you know, I never really I, – I'll I tell you where I probably um, just kind of wasn't able to uh, – one of the reasons why I wasn't able to beat it very much the last uh, four or five years and maybe not at all now is because, I, you know, I never really got into using like a technical model, you know, looking at where – where. so you talk about Bayes, Rufus, like going into, you know, what the chances are that this line is bad, <laughs> which is – probably an important aspect of, of getting a, an edge in sports these days um, is, you know, wh why would this line be bad in the first place? And then to take that information, use that as like a Bayesian, uh, uh, you know, prior, and then apply, and then apply that when I look at the, uh, the line versus my line. And I never really did that. And you probably need to do something like that now 
in baseball, maybe in any other sports. And you probably need to use something other than a, like a, almost something other than like a purely analytical model, because that's what they're putting out. You know, they're putting out an analytical model, you know, what are they using and what's the smart public doing? They're take they're using a sabermetric model, right? They're using projections, which are available on 20 websites for free, right? For good projections for right. players and pitchers. And everybody, you know, everybody knows park factors. Those are available on the web at a half a dozen places for free. So, that you know, they're able to use those. And they're basically both the lines makers and the smart public, you know, they're ignoring all the old stuff that used to bias the lines, the streak, the perception of players and teams, the, you know, the hot and cold streaks, that sort of thing. So you probably need, you know, a little bit more of a technical model. And I, when I when I use that term, I, mean, I use that term like people that uh, – bet the stock market, you know, technical versus fundamental. My models used to be strictly fundamental. I mean, they still are and might not be able to beat baseball anymore with just a fundamental model, no matter how granular and nuanced you get with the pitch FX data and that sort of stuff and the stat cast data. I, I do agree with what you're saying about how basically you're searching for like the a needle in the haystack right now with the stat cast stuff, just to, just to squeak out a little bit more of an edge. But yeah, um, but I, I think in a way you probably sort of ushered in the sort of efficiency of the baseball betting market with, with the book. What, how did, what was the impetus to write that? Were you concerned at all at the time that it would sort of take, you know, eat away at your advantage? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, sure. I would think about that now and then, and, you know, before I wrote it and after I wrote it and after we put it back. But um, yeah, I mean, I probably was just part of the, uh, the, the revolution that kind of ruined the, the game, but <laughs> small part i certainly didn't do it single-handedly really small part i don't know you know i don't know if i consciously or unconsciously tried when when i when i wrote the book and i only wrote um one third of the book basically you know we have three authors and each one of us wrote about one third so i wrote three chapters or something like that um so you know it didn't seem to me like there was a whole lot in the book um beyond what was already sort of publicly available even at the time what was that 12, 13 years ago or something, um, you know, that would really have a big impact on on baseball betting. Maybe I miscalculated a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. But I enjoyed it. I didn't make much money off of it. We make maybe like a few thousand a year or something on book sales. We, we sell maybe like – we still sell a couple thousand a year, I think. Um, so – and I've never been really – one to you know be really proprietary really secretive about stuff i like to put stuff out in the public uh, arena um you know i made enough money uh, uh you know over the years i you know last 10 years or whatever i i i didn't or and don't feel a, a need to extract every last penny from any endeavor that i do that i can you know so you you mentioned that you know the edges have kind of gone in baseball. You mentioned obviously that you were you know poker and blackjack player, advantage player. Um, you know that that defines you. I think you know you and I have met a few times and talked. Uh, you were someone who's looking for edges. Where where do you see edges now? If they're not in baseball, or are you still playing poker and blackjack? I assume not blackjack because many of those edges are gone in terms of the games that they're offering. Um, where are you spending your time now or where are you seeing some edges? Yeah. I mean, I'm mostly retired from that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I'm way older than Rufus and a little bit uh, older than you, uh, Jeff, probably, uh, I'm uh, 10 plus years older than you are. So I'm pushing 60. So I'm mostly retired from all that stuff. I 
don't play blackjack at all anymore. Haven't for years. Uh, although, you know, I do know some people that still, they go around, uh, even just still doing traditional card counting. Most of the people that I know that play blackjack and just do traditional card counting, um, mostly play outside of Vegas, you know, around the country, uh, outside of Nevada and, uh, outside of Atlantic city, of course. So there, there's apparently still good games all over the country. You just kind of, uh, uh, and even, uh, overseas, you just kind of have to pick and choose your places from what I understand. I'm not, I'm really, I'm out of the loop there. I still play poker every once in a while. I, I think, uh, poker has, and will probably indefinitely have tremendous opportunities. I mean, people just, love to play poker and love to lose their money. And it's a very, very, very difficult game to learn how to play well, obviously compared to blackjack, which you and I know, you know, you can sit down and teach somebody how to play blackjack in, uh, in a day or less than have them practice for a few days or a couple of weeks, a little bit tougher in the casino, but you know, it's like nothing compared to learning how to be a, a good poker player so plenty of opportunities uh in poker at all levels Especially so small and levels of poker yeah yeah no that makes that makes sense and, and that's that's actually like the one of the things that we talk or i talk a lot about with the whole blackjack concept right because blackjack because it is such a perfect analytical game and it, it's it's so solved it's really hard to gain like i might be the best card counter in the world but the next best card counter is basically the same as me um, whereas poker is much harder to, um, you know, to sort of solve or model, and therefore it's much easier to gain an advantage by being good than it is necessarily in blackjack. So I don't, I mean, I mean necessarily mean easier, but you can gain a much bigger advantage. That essentially what you're saying. Um, well, I wanted yeah. to move in into sort of talking a little bit more about baseball because obviously one of the personas that that you have is is your Twitter persona and your very adamant about um you know the bad decisions that managers make um in baseball games and so is that something you think that's getting better do you think it'll ever be great or is it just is it just so so hard for them to make these right decisions and and maybe it'd be good to sort of like even come up with a, a few really simple examples because i know i know you and i have gone back and forth on twitter before about this where you just think it should be as simple as basic strategy for blackjack there should just be basic strategy for managers and yet they they seem to make mistakes all the time yeah that's exactly right you know to, to answer the question will it ever be you know you can never answer a will it ever be question of course um uh you know who knows what it's going to be anything's going to be like in 50 or 100 years um but yeah, I mean, as long as human beings are managing games, um, it's not likely to be even close to perfect strategy. If we're talking in-game stra strategic decisions, you know, it's just they're human beings. Uh, even if you or I were managing a baseball game, you know, we'd probably make the same blunders because we're some of the same blunders because we're human beings and we're uh, subject to the same you know, heuristics and biases and emotion that all human beings are subject to from uh, from evolution, I guess. Uh, you know, they obviously have, uh, incorrect decisions in life have some kind of an evolutionary advantage somewhere <laughs> millions of years ago, I guess, or hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they've definitely gotten a lot better because, you know, you, you can't compare like a young manager that's sort of been schooled a little bit in, in sabermetrics and analytics and 
you know, front offices are all filled by, uh, you know, quants and analysts and all that, and they're helping to school their managers. You know, it's not like comparing, like, um, you know, Jim Leland uh, uh, to uh, who's a good young manager these days. Actually, some of the young managers are bad, but, um, um, you know, um, who's who's a good young manager? Help me out here, you know, analytically. Um, you know, maybe uh, even... Kepler? I mean, Hinch is supposed to be decent, right? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, Kapler's a good example. Um, I mean, I think he takes a little bit too far sometimes, a little bit like Madden maybe. But, yeah, great example. A young guy that's basically gone through the whole analytical phase. And, I, you know, I haven't really followed the, the Phillies much. Uh, he is a Phillies manager, right? Yeah, he's the Phillies manager now. Yeah, yeah, and I think they're doing pretty well, aren't they? Or... Yeah, they're doing all right. And, and you know, he was yeah. getting flack at the beginning of the year, right, for taking pitchers out too quickly, correct? And so that, for most people that follow, you know, anything around, you know, first time through the order, second time through the third time through the order, I don't I don't know if there's such a thing as taking a starting pitcher out too soon. Yeah, <laughs> well, it depends on who the pitcher is, obviously, and uh, it depends on the, the leverage of the game, you know, the the, the score in the inning and all that. And, um, yeah. you know, you can't um, – you probably don't want – I've talked about this on Twitter, although 90% of my posts now, 95 are political, obviously. Um, but, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you know you gotta you you gotta find some sort of overall method for saving your bullpen a little bit. Um, and you know one of the things if I, if I were to come up with a basic strategy for among many things, but like for you know removing starting pitchers, it would be really simple, and it would be probably better than any manager, even the best ones are doing right now. Um, and uh, it would just be, you know, if you if uh, if the leverage is low, you can leave anybody in there. It doesn't matter who it is, right? Because it just doesn't make that much of a difference. Um, and then, if obviously, if you have a um, a really good pitcher in there, even the third time through the order, maybe even the fourth, we can calculate the effect real easily, and then we compare it to what's the alternative. So, lots of times, a really good starter is better than the third or fourth time through the order than the reliever that you're going to put in there. Um, and you know, you gotta, you gotta, uh, um, triage your relievers a little bit. You can't just uh, start throwing them in there willy nilly. Although I am a big fan of like, uh, you know, you have your kind of fungible relievers, um, that you bring up and down from the minors that really have almost no value. They're basically replacement level relievers. I mean, those are the guys to put in there when the leverage is low. Then again, if you have a starter in there and he's not a good starter, but it's the third or first time through the order, well, you can might as well let him pitch too if the leverage is low. So you leave your starter in there if the leverage is low, even if he's a bad starter or a mediocre starter, or if you want to save his arm for whatever reason, or he's thrown 100, 110 pitches or 115, then you bring in one of your fungible relievers to finish out the game because it's, Nothing matters when the leverage is low in a baseball game. That's one thing that managers don't understand, even the good ones, and that's human nature is, you know, we're down by four runs uh, in the seventh inning. The leverage is extremely low, but we're not giving up, right? (laughs) We're trying our best to win the game and vice versa. Uh, We're up by five runs in the seventh inning, and it would be unthinkable to lose the game. Therefore, we're going to do everything we can 
to preserve that lead. And both those strategies are by and large, they're not correct, but how, how are you going to train a manager to think that way? Right. Right. I've always found it interesting when a manager is like out making two pitching changes in the ninth inning when his team's down eight to one, I, I, I'm just like, <laughs> you're delaying the inevitable here. What, why, why do you need to, to get these guys work? But um, I, I really like what you said. Your, uh, your strategy or your, your um, framework is, is, nice and simple and i think that's the i think generally the simplest things are easy to understand like make when you make things easy to understand um and easy to implement it's more likely to catch on um, but what do you think of the rays way they're using relievers as starters in the first inning for for matchups um which for the people that are listening that are not baseball fans and not attuned to this the rays a lot of games are, are putting uh a reliever sergio roma was the first guy they used uh to fi- uh to allowing him to uh, pitch the first inning when the matchups are in in his favor. So in this case, I, I forget who he was facing. I think the Angels. It's Angels right, right, predominantly right-handed. Right-handed you know, at the top, top of their order, order right? Yeah. And so the, the whole strategy, then they have a lefty come in, and that lefty then can go two times through the order without having to face um, – or actually he can go part of the way through a third time through the order without having to face the the top hitters and the top right-handed hitters on the Angels. Yeah, I mean, as far as matchups go, it's a great strategy. Like, it's a little bit like uh, many years ago. Jeff, I don't know if you remember this. Um, Rufus, you'd be too young. But um, it was Larusa and maybe even Leland. Um, I think it was in the postseason or something uh, where they, like, um, they, they started with, like, a lefty or a righty, and the other team, you know, had put in there. It was kind of a platoonish team, so they put in the appropriate batters. And then he took that pitcher out after one or two innings. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, maybe force them to use like both ends of their platoon in the first few innings. And then, um, but so it's similar to that, um, you know, just kind of fooling the other team into thinking that your starter is going to go five or six innings, but it's a good strategy. Yeah, it's fine. Now there was a little bit of controversy. I tweeted about it and thought about it at the time because that was what, like two months ago. Um, and I don't really remember. It was a good strategy. There was a little bit of controversy because people were talking about like, oh, this is great because he's putting in, you know, one of their best relievers, presumably, uh, you know, he's only good against righties. He's awful against lefties, but um, he shouldn't be used against lefties at all, Romo. Um, but, um, you know, they're talking about, well, this is great putting in your best reliever or your best pitcher on the staff, really, like, in the first inning against the top of the order because those are the the best hitters, top and the middle of the order. And then I was saying, well, you know, you're putting in a reliever or a good reliever to say your closer in the first inning. The leverage in the first inning is almost always right around neutral, right? So that is not a good strategy at all. <laughs> you want your best pitchers pitching the highest leverage situations in the game. So that's a terrible strategy. And then putting in your best reliever against uh, the best hitters on the other team there's almost no value to that. There's a little bit of value because of leverage, but there's very little value to that. That's a little bit of a myth. You know, you want your good pitchers against the other team's good hitters. A little bit of a myth there. Um, but the matchups things, that's that's spot on. But not putting in a good – I'd rather see a manager put in uh, not such a good pitcher in the first inning to take advantage of the matchup thing. And then – like you said, take them out. And you're just talking about the platoon matchups in that case. One of the things I was thinking that was interesting, I don't know if you remember, but maybe like two or three years ago when when Farhan was still with the A's, um, they were doing some really 
platoon heavy lineup. So against lefties, they were able to get almost all righties in there. And against righties, they were almost able to get all lefties. And it's because they had a, a few different switch hitters and some real position flexibility. And I remember thinking like those lineups, you know, they performed pretty well because of the platoons. But like, it's interesting because yeah. the way to maybe beat those would have been to do exactly what you said is to like almost have this this you know righty come in pitch three innings and then swap and then all of a sudden well what do you do you you lost that platoon advantage are you going to pinch hit and then screw the whole thing up or what are you going to do but that might have been an interesting approach to attack what the a's had been doing you know relatively successful uh successfully that year um yeah yeah the, you know the the pitching team uh, really has the advantage in terms of those situations um just because they have um uh, you know, one pitcher can face the whole lineup and you have many more pitchers to use. The manager is not that flexible, obviously, in terms of uh, of, of swapping out their uh, players in their lineup, left and, left and right. You know, once the game starts, you know, what do you have? Especially these days, you got these huge um, bullpens and you have usually um, three players on the bench. So you don't really have that much flexibility. So, the defense can really take advantage uh, like um, Kapler was doing. And uh, unlike, you know, what the A's were doing, like you were talking about, defense really has the upper hand there in terms of the uh, platoon matchups. I thought, Jeff, I thought you were going to talk about um, um, the A's were also uh, thrown out at, like a lot of fly ball hitters out there. That was also from a few years ago. Do you remember that? Because, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's what got them like Chris Davis and those types of thinking, right? Yeah, yeah, their their presumption was that uh, pitchers were starting to throw lower in the zone and basically becoming ground ball pitchers as a whole, as 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 a league as a whole. And um, again, as we now know, or we've known, you know, for probably for the last ten or twenty years, and we talk about that in the book a little bit. Um, the uh, the other platoon matchup besides handedness is ground fly. So fly ball batters do particularly well against ground ball pitchers and vice versa um, for obvious reasons, just because they, uh, they square up the ball more often. And uh, I, I think in my, uh, in my research, um, what I find is uh, that um, when you get the opposite uh, matchup, you know, the ground ball hitter, fly ball pitcher, fly ball batter, ground ball pitcher, that they hit more line drive. That's where the edge comes from. It's fascinating. Um, In terms of, uh, in, now, how much credit do you give yourself for the Astros winning the World Series? Because if if Jeff Lunau was an important piece of that, I feel like you must have educated Jeff Lunau a lot along the way. Yeah, I never thought about that, really, but that's probably true. You know, Jeff and I worked pretty closely um, when um, – he was with the Cardinals, and then of course I I did work uh, for the Cardinals in 2004 2005, um, and um, haven't been in touch with him lately, but kept in touch with him for quite a few years after that. Um, so and we definitely talked about a lot of things. So uh, he he's a really bright guy. He's just one of those guys that he's just all about learning from everybody and everything and trying to ignore as much as possible, all the biases and the heuristics that get in the way of a team being successful. He's tremendous at that. Now I don't know many GMs, so there's probably a lot of other ones that are good at that too. And, you know, front office people, but 
he was tremendous at that and we're and we're going back now like um so it's been like 14 years since i worked for the cardinals so um he was really good about that back then which was probably you know he was probably one of a kind back then in terms of that so to answer your question yeah i guess i never really thought about it but sure i guess he's 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 an information guy and he probably got a lot of stuff from me, and he probably got a lot of stuff from other people too. And, he, and he's got good people working in his front office, obviously. Yeah, he he does. Um, yeah, yeah. I think they they probably should get you a World Series ring. Is what I'm thinking. So <laughs> thanks. <laughs> it's funny because uh, you know obviously they won in, uh, in 2006, and then was it 04 that they got swept? When I was with them, they got swept by uh, by the Red Sox. By the Red Sox, I got swept by the Red Sox, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, do, if you know anybody there, do me a favor. Like I said, I haven't talked to, to Jeff Luna in a while. Um, in fact, he, he, it's funny, he unfollowed me uh, on Twitter for some reason, like maybe. <laughs> is he, know, is but, he a conservative? Is he, was he tired of hearing your rants about Trump? Uh, no, I doubt it. Um, Actually, like, you know, he speaks fluent uh, Spanish. His first wife, I believe, was – he lived in Mexico for a long time. I believe his first wife was uh, from Mexico. Um, I doubt he's real conservative, uh, maybe. But, you know, it could be – I was really harsh. (laughs) And this is kind of funny, and you'll appreciate this, actually. You know, when you're – you know, when you're betting – and we still actually do the postseason last few years, and – we still do pretty well in the postseason. Uh, it, here's a side thing: is I think that the lines are much softer in the postseason. They still are, uh, especially the series prices. I, I hate to say that. Hopefully, not many people listen to your podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what we hope. Also, <laughs> that's funny. But um, so I think the lines are are still really soft. Uh, like I said, especially the series prices in the postseason. So I, I still do postseason, and I think I still have a big edge in the postseason or at least a decent one. But anyway, as you know, you know, when, when I'm tweeting about baseball, especially during the postseason, I can get really emotional based on my bet on that particular game. <laughs> and um, I was really hard on the Astros the last couple of years um, based on emotion. And he might've taken a couple of those to heart. And I'll even tell you something else funny is um, probably not lately, but a few years ago, I would even like after like a bad loss, I mean like a betting loss, I would uh, fire up an email to uh, <laughs> to Jeff or some of the people in the organization, Jeff Luna, mm-hmm. um, an analytical one, but it would be tinged with emotion based upon <laughs> the loss. <laughs> So that's I amazing. Think that might have, I think that might have been one of the reasons why he might unfollow. That's me, that's sure. like the large problem with us as gamblers knowing some of these people in these front offices because when when you know we we're like you you could have done this differently, and you should have done this differently. Um, but I I try to keep myself from ever communicating that stuff to these guys as that's, much as I can. That's a good strategy. <laughs> uh, Rufus, do you have anything else you want to? Uh, you want to ask? Yeah, yeah. I mean, sp- speaking of sort of the emotion of it, um, how do you? I, I, I've always found that baseball is the toughest sport for me emotionally because I guess it's it's the first thing I ever modeled and and I kind of I don't know. I guess I sort of define myself in a way through my ability to beat the baseball betting market. And so when when I go through losing streaks, it can be quite like it can be 
I mean, it can be a little tough on me, you know, because baseball, you can't escape it. It's, it's every day, right? I mean, you're winning and losing every day. Like, how did you betting through so many, you know, so many years, how did you handle the ups and downs? Uh, I would say probably not real well. Uh, people would just assume because I'm such an analytical person <clears throat> that I would be pretty stoic. But anybody, you or anybody that bets on sports understands how difficult that is to be uh, stoic uh, uh, about it. Um, and um, you know, I won't say that it influenced, you know, my my wagering, obviously, or my, my handicapping, whatever you want to call it, you know, very much at all. Um, although, in fact, you know, sometimes I was – too analytical just again as a side thing uh side note just uh i'd watch a lot of games the last few years i I haven't done it very much at all but i'd watch a lot a lot of games and i consider myself somewhat independently of the analytical stuff like really good evaluator of like pitchers for example you know there's no way to evaluate from watching a position player um at least i don't think so but you know pitcher uh, I think I, I was really good at evaluating pitchers and I'd have some like opinions from watching them now you have to be careful of course you know any pitcher can look like a superstar on one day and look like a bum on another day um, just randomly but I, I think I was really good and I, I, I think over the years I probably ignored that intuitive sense a little bit too much like a couple of examples um, to answer your other question like I wasn't very good emotionally with the ups and downs I was terrible I and I'm got a little bit better over the years, but I have some broken, lots of broken things and some bumps and bruises to prove it. <laughs> In fact, uh, uh-huh. I've got this like, uh, <laughs> this is funny too. I've got this like ganglion cyst on my right wrist. Like I've had it for like almost 10 years. And that came from uh, slamming a television screen, like one of the old televisions, you know, the tubes with a, baseball bat or something like that and it didn't break but i almost broke my wrist after a big loss and i, and I have a ganglion cyst on my wrist to prove that so um <laughs> but like what i was saying about um you know watching the pictures like i remember like watching a couple of times like like um weaver um who's the who's the younger weaver jeff uh jared's the younger one yeah jared's jared Jared, Jared, yeah jared weaver like uh from a couple of years ago you know when he was losing his velocity and while he was still pitching a couple other guys like fister um a couple other guys and and watching him pitch i go these guys absolutely oh uh, and linscombe remember when he when he lost it or when he came back uh, for maybe a couple of games and watching them pitch and going from what i know and understand and and knowing myself as a good evaluator pitchers uh these guys are horrible, just terrible. Like they probably have like a true talent ERA of like six. And yet I'd run my models and, you know, my projection for those guys would be like, maybe like a four, seven, four, eight, you know, their true talent ERA. And like, we ended up like betting on them a bunch of times. And my heart was telling me, no, they were way, way worse than that. But I just couldn't bring myself to, uh, sort of, um, you know, Trump to use a bad word, my analytical model. You know, I, I, I actually remember the same thing. I was betting on Jared Weaver way too often as well. And I mean, do you think that's because your model was looking back, you know, years as a good model should and not noticing that there was sort of a regime shift to speak, so to speak, right? Where he, he just, where he just lost his velocity and just wasn't getting the same movement. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I incorporate velocity uh, into the models, so it knows that he's throwing, you know, 86 or even he was lower than that just before he retired, right? Like 83, 82. So it knows that. Jamie Moyer territory. Yeah, but Jamie Moyer was actually pretty decent for a long time when he was throwing in the low 80s. So that's the thing is, is that the model is sort of based on the major league pitcher that throws 82, 83, 84, which is he's got some other thing going for him that he's able to pitch in the major leagues, right? Which I'm probably not anymore these days, but, um, but um, if you watch one of these pitchers, you know, it's possible that some pitchers like Weaver or Fister or maybe even more just before he retired is, is that you're watching a pitcher that shouldn't be in the major league and the model is presuming that he is in the major leagues, and that's where the problem is. And then the line, especially the last few years, the public is actually reflecting on the fact that uh, Jared Weaver's, you know, his ERA is like 7.84, you know, even though I still have him projected as 4.92. <laughs> that, that's a really good point, though, that, that you're taking, you're using a population of major league pitchers, and, and you know, it's, it's the Chris Tillman this year, right? Chris Tillman just looks, I'm an Orioles fan and, and that guy, he just allowed two runs on two walks and three hits in an inning in, in low a short season uh-huh. ball, uh, last night. Like, like he, he should not be a major league pitcher. Uh-huh. Yeah. You, you know, I it's know. Funny. I, sorry. I, I just saw your tweet um, earlier today on James Shields and I was, and, and then I just happened to like right before the podcast uh, bet on Shields. So same thing you said, there. You said you, you bet on him? I bet on him today, unfortunately. Okay. Well, no, I... Um, started, yes. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. But no, I haven't. I haven't. Like when I, I tweeted that out, really, that was just based on my projections. And um, I, I think I even looked at like Steamer projections and he had them in. You know, Steamer's really good um, for projections. So probably the best public uh, projection model out there. Um, and and I, I know Jared pretty well, and um, you know he's a really smart guy. Um, he's he's the guy that him and his uh, ex students uh, put out the steamer projections. But um, um, you know, so Shields was yeah he was had also bad projection from steamer like in the mid fives or something like that um, in terms of ERA. So I haven't seen him, so I don't know if he he fits into that category of uh, a pitcher that you know, shouldn't be pitching in the major leagues, but that's, that's, you know, that's some of the problem with when you're just that I have and anybody else that's using a strictly analytical model is since they're based on the population of major league pitchers, established major league pitchers, um, is that like a projection for uh, a pitcher, the, the range of my projections are much narrower than the actual range of talent. If that makes sense. Um, even though you would think that they should be approximately equivalent, but they're not, you know, there's pitchers out there. I'm sure in the major leagues that their true talent ERA is, you know, probably five and a half or six, you know, what's the current ERA this year is what about four, one or something like that four two. So, you know, in the fives or maybe even six, but I'll never have a pitcher projected to be that bad so if i happen to be betting on or against that pitcher probably mostly on you know i'm probably making a big mistake and all all analytical models should suffer from that kind of a 
bias, if you want to call it that. But there's almost nothing you can do about it except if somehow you think that you can, you know, watch these pitchers and, and be able to sort of uh, infer the true talent beyond what your model says, then all the more power to you. I, I probably could do that to some extent, but I pretty much ignored that over the years, probably to my detriment. It's tough, and it's something I've, I'm. Str- I actually just talked with Cade Massey. I, I do the Massey Peabody um, projections for for football, and we were talking about the same sort of thing for for being able to project quarterbacks. So, it's. I, I think it's it's not just limited to baseball. Oh, okay, yeah, but you know, like ninety, you know, ninety nine percent of the of people that tried to do that. I'm just throwing out a number. You know, would actually. Do, do worse in doing that. You know, they, 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 they're not good enough to evaluate. I'm just talking about pitchers now, you know, beyond, you know, to get extra value from that analytical model. In fact, they'd probably um, take away value because they would probably suffer from the biases and the heuristics and the, and the uh, poor analysis that human brains do when it comes to, um, you know, looking at small sample sizes. So, that's the danger, of course, and I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. I, I completely agree with that. This is uh, seems like a good place to to let you go, Mitchell. This has been a, an awesome time talking through this. I know Rufus is uh, definitely inspired by your baseball work, and obviously I, I've always been. So I really appreciate the time you spent with us, um, and uh, hopefully we can all go find some more edges in baseball after this conversation. Yeah, thanks. Hey, it was a lot of fun being on. I appreciate you kind words. Um, shout out to your book, Jeff, uh, a few years ago. I've told you before, and I've even probably written about it a couple times. Absolutely loved your book. Um, Thank kinda, you. Appreciate it. Yeah, so anybody listening to the podcast that wants to read like a really good book on using uh, analytical strategies for business and for life, should check out Jeff's book as well. I don't know if you if you talk about your book much on the podcast, but thought I'd give it a shout out and didn't, you know, I'm not trying to be uh, solicitous or gratuitous about that. So. All right. Appreciate that, man. All right. Okay. You guys uh, take care. Are we done? Yep. We're done. We're done. Thanks. Thanks a lot.